Hey there, this is another sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. This Sunday is November 28th, 2021, and we are now in the Advent season. So happy Advent, happy uh, Hanukkah to all of our Jewish friends, and may God bless you as you listen to this word. Today's topic comes from the last part of our series called Called by the Name. It's an invitation to prayer out of Second Chronicles 7.14, and today's message is entitled Negotiating Forgiveness Healing. God bless you as you listen. Well, welcome here today. We're wrapping up our series today uh, from Second Chronicles chapter uh, 7, verse 14. Uh, we're going to reread the text for us today, but today we're going to look at how we can negotiate forgiveness healing from God. This is a popular text, as I've said in the past, for those who are earnestly hoping for and praying for revival. We look around the land and that we live in, and we all can see that there is a real need for God to show up and heal our land. Amen? Right? We look around at the broader headlines of the news, and though we would never maybe say it out loud or post it on social media, but we kind of wonder if some of the things like viruses and floods aren't maybe God's discipline, his punishment on the world and its wickedness. Now, if we claim that, we would have to then be prepared to defend that and God's right to be able to do that. And most of us probably aren't ready to do that, at least online. But today, we're going to look around at our life network and see also how the effects of sin and denial of God have led people that we love and care about, people that we work with, into more chaos than their lives are happy with at this point. And some of that spills over into our lives. Is it possible for us to pray a certain way to God to negotiate forgiveness and healing in our land? That's our question for today. The context of our passage is the conclusion of Solomon's temple construction and its dedication, followed by Yahweh speaking to Solomon with a warning and a promise. So let's read it again, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. It says, When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, this is the part we like, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Now, the part we like is the hope of God hearing from heaven, right? Forgiving our sin, healing our land. And as I said last week, people usually recite and pray verse 14 when there is something amiss in the world around them. Or they perceive that there is a need for revival or some sort of social or spiritual reform. But but as I also said the last time, this is not written to us. This is spoken to Solomon by God 
for the people of Israel and for him in the context of building and dedicating this new temple of God in Jerusalem. Verse 15 and 16. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Not this place, God's place, the temple that Solomon just built. He says in verse 16, I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. See, friends, if you want to be a solid student of the Bible, you have to understand some of the primary rules of Bible interpretation. Context is key to applying the Bible. However, every Bible passage has multiple contexts. There's never just one. First, the worldview of the biblical writers is the first fundamental context. This means that we must do our very best to think like the writers and like the characters within the story that we are reading. Their worldview was not our worldview. They knew nothing of the 21st century of evangelical theology or of the Reformation or even of Calvinism. Another context for interpretation is that of the literary context or the genre of the text that we're reading. A genre is a type of literature. Is it historical? Is it poetic? Or is it prophecy, etc.? Frankly, without knowing, the accurate, without knowing that, the accurate interpretation of the text is impossible. Lastly, every word has its own context in relation to the other contexts. The life histories and the life experiences of the author and the characters provide context to the words that they use. Context is key. Here's a for instance. You might not like me after this. Psalm 46, verse 10. Maybe you have a pillow with this embroidered on it at home. Be still and know that I am God. That's not written to us. It's not even written to Israel. It's written to Israel's enemies. We quote it to people. We slap it on greeting cards and plaques and pillows. And we use it to comfort others and ourselves. But God said it actually to stress out his enemies, not to comfort him, them, or his peoples. Context is key to interpretation and application. And same thing is true for 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Is it a revival passage? Well, yes and no. For Israel, it definitely was. But in order for this passage to apply to us today, we have to understand its context, which we spent a good deal of time last time looking at. But we also need to see it in its relation to the new covenant and how it parallels to us today. Because to begin with, God relates differently to people today than he did then, doesn't he? Those who are called by his name then was Israel. Today, it is the church. Where God's presence abides among his people is different too. Back then, it was in a temple. But today, we are the temple of God, right? So things are different in the new covenant, which means that where, where and how we pray and seek God's face is going to be different today too. When we turn from our sins, we don't have to bring a sacrifice to the temple. That's not how we get God's forgiveness today. Today, our forgiveness is guaranteed by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross once and for all, and nothing we can bring is sufficient to forgive sins. It's solely on Christ. So when we sin, we humble ourselves before God for sure, and we appeal to the finished work of Christ, not to any other sacrifice or good work. 
So what is true and applicable from this passage is that Christians should humble themselves. And they should pray. And we should seek God's face all the time. And we should turn from our wicked ways. And all of that is still very important in living out a new covenant faith today. Sadly, though, when you read this passage and others like it, it's also true that Christians can still slip into laziness, into sin, and even into idolatry, just like they did in, Sol- in Solomon's day. And there are some new covenant if conditions and consequences that we need to be mindful of today and be humble to, of today by today. Like chronic, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23 in the New Testament. Paul says, once you were alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Listen to verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 to 11. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is possible, like in the days of Solomon, for God's people, some of God's people, for Christians today to take God for granted. And to even follow away, fall away and follow after other gods. And just like in the Old Testament, God will not tolerate you believing in somebody else. He will not tolerate you rejecting him. He will not tolerate you denying Jesus his lordship. And he will do what God has to do in order to bring you back to himself. As the writer of Hebrews calls uh, that the Lord's discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 to 7. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship then as discipline. God is treating you as his children. So yeah, in walking this Christian life that we live, you might doubt. You might have doubts. You might struggle with your faith. You might even sin. And if you stray too far, you can be guaranteed because of God's love that he will do everything he can. He will attempt to bring you back by disciplining you. And that may hurt depending on how far you've, you've wandered and how stubborn you are in your life. If that's you, then just come back to the Lord. If, if you've wandered away, come back to the Lord. Hebrews 12.10 concludes with God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. But if you reject God, if you say, I don't believe anymore, or you say, Jesus is not my Savior and Lord of my life anymore, then you have no reason to think that you will be saved. There is no once saved, always saved if you reject Jesus. Think about it. How many unbelievers will be in heaven? None. So if you say, I don't believe anymore, there's consequences. Okay, so what about on a national level? 
like God healing our land. Certainly there are people in our land that do not follow Christ and do not submit to the Lord's lordship. And part of that context of, of this passage is the land. And again, everything is, context is everything. The land that the Lord was referring to was the promised land of Israel. The land promised to Abraham and his descendants from the land of Ur all the way through to the land of Egypt and then settling in the land of Canaan. And everywhere he stepped foot was the land that God promised him and his descendants. That land was then confirmed through Moses and Joshua and then finally secured through Solomon's father, King David. But the health of that land was conditional. Always was. It was meant to be a land flowing with milk and honey for Israel. But if Israel rejected the Lord, their God, and they followed after other gods, then it wouldn't be. God had the right to revoke his promise based on their their, uh, obedience. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1 to 9. This is the source text for, for, Coloss- uh, for 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You'll find a lot of the same material in here. And that's why when Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord in the royal palace and achieved all that he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and the plea that you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe by my decrees and laws. Verse 5, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all people. Verse 8, this temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff, saying, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. And when you read the history books, When you look at history, it tells us that Israel did end up following after other gods, didn't it? Solomon, too, followed after the gods of his foreign wives that he married to build alliances with people. But he also built altars to foreign gods. And so Solomon's kingdom split. And eventually God did divorce Israel and the Holy Spirit did leave Zion. Just read Ezekiel. And Solomon's temple did get destroyed in 586 B.C. at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar II, who then deported the Jews to to Babylon. They had no more home after that. Centuries later, the Roman uh, King Herod built a new Jewish temple. And that temple was then destroyed in 70 A.D. after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what's on that temple mount today? A Muslim shrine known as the Dome on the Rock. 
And every day still that shrine to a false god is a reminder of Israel's idolatry and the Lord's rejection of them. And the devout Jews hang out there still today. Every day they go to the western wall and they wail and they mourn in shame and repentance. Now nowhere in the Bible is there a promise that God will heal Canada or the United States. I told you that the last time. But there are still warnings in the Bible, in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, about rejecting the Lord as we've just read. So then what can we pray for? I think 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a beautiful way to pray still. Contextually, of course. When we take the history lessons that we learn from the days of Solomon and Israel, and since then, it should really cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord. God forbid that we would ever do anything to to follow after another God, but God forbid that we would ever think we're immune to doing that too. You and I are not immune to to idolatry. Just because we prayed a prayer once to get saved does not make us immune to following our own path in life and rejecting the Lord. I'm sure you know people who once prayed the prayer and are no longer loyal to Jesus. Pray for them. Don't give up. The humility of 2 Chronicles 7.14 calls us to, reminds us to examine ourselves daily and to walk humbly before our God to ensure that there is only one God in our lives every moment of every day. And that we're following His will and His priorities and His commands and building His kingdom and not our own. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we have this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. It's a warning. Paul told this to Christians because we are all susceptible to unfaithfulness when we take our eyes off of Jesus. So you can pray 2 Corinthians 7.14 for yourself. You can pray 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 for yourself. And maybe this is how you'd like to pray. And why don't we just make this our prayer right now? If my people, it starts off. Lord, I am one of your people. I am called by your name. And so I humble myself before you. And I pray that you teach me to submit to your lordship in every moment of my day. And Lord, I seek your face. I want to know you better and more every day. And so I turn from my wickedness, those things that make you unseeable to me. These are them, and I appeal only to the finished work of Christ on the cross, and I claim your forgiveness that I may walk well with you. I do not want this temple of yours, me, to defame your name ever among those people in my life network. Instead, I want everyone to know that Jesus is Lord of my life. I want them to know by how I live that they too can live forgiven and redeemed. And so you can pray 2 Chronicles 7.14 for yourself. And if you pray 2 Chronicles 7.14 for yourself, you know what? You will never need a revival because only dying things need to be revived right? But if you're never dying, 
you don't need to be revived. You will just constantly live in fellowship and connection with the living Lord. You can also pray 2 Chronicles 7.14 for the people of the land. Contextually, of course. You can pray 2 Chronicles 7.14 for the people of the land. Pray for Israel, first of all. Pray for Israel to accept Jesus as Messiah. They were once the chosen people of God. Their inheritance from Abraham was that through them all the nations of the world would be blessed through their faith. But when the blessing came, when Jesus came and we lit that first Advent candle announcing that it was coming, but when that blessing came, when Messiah came to that which was his own, John chapter 1 verse 11 says his own did not receive him. The Jews did not receive him. So pray for Israel. Canada is not the promised land. We'll never make this the promised land through moral, social, political, or religious reforms. But the Lord commands us in the New Testament to still pray and obey the leaders of our land, doesn't he? To give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We are commanded in the New Testament to love and to do good to our neighbors. We are commanded to care for the poor and the displaced and the lonely. We are commanded to reach those who are lost and in need of Jesus. We're commanded to make disciples every day. You can also pray for people in your life network too. You can pray 2 Chronicles 7.14 for your life network as well. And maybe this is how you could pray. Pray this with me. If my people, Lord, not all the people in the land that we live in our life network are your people. Many of the people in my life network follow after other gods. Or they reject all gods altogether to follow after their own will and their own lordship. So your name is not on them. Lord, I claim them for your great name. Lord, humble them so that they may see your need, their need of you, and turn to you and call on your name in repentance and faith. Lord, when they pray, and I know they pray in secret, help them see your face so that they will long for you. Lord, they need to know you or they will be lost forever. Help them today to turn from their wicked ways and to appeal only to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Bring healing to their life and soul by granting them the forgiveness and the salvation that is in Jesus. Lord, they need you. And make me an ambassador to them so that they will know through me that they can have all this in Jesus' name. So you can pray for your land like that. You can pray for your life network like that. The nation that you live in. We should humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways And encourage that by praying that for others. Now you will never convince a whole nation to abandon their gods and to believe only in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that should never discourage any of us from praying for it, right? We need to pray, pray, pray. Because God desires, he seeks followers and worshipers.
Because here is the promise of healing at the end of the book. When you turn to the end of the book, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Chapter 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride and the wife of the Lamb. 22, verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is its temple. 22, verse 1. "Then Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So God does want to heal the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and and of the Lamb will be in that city, and his servants will serve him. Notice this, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, one day when the day of the Lord takes place and you and I and everyone else whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life enters into that city, then we will see the healing of the nations once and for all because of Christ and his return. Verse 3 tells us how that healing is accomplished. It says there will, be, there will no longer be any curse. In other words, the curse of Genesis 3 will be reversed and we, the imagers of God, that's us, will be glorified with Christ. We will be like him. And for all eternity, women, men, and children, Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will serve him, will see his face, and his name will be on them forever. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And we can pray that into existence. We can pray that God will do that through us, that he will expand the nations who are going to be in that holy city at the end of the age by praying and reaching out to the people of this land. So knowing your destiny, don't you want to be able to bring as many people along with you as possible? That's why we need to pray and be devoted to prayer. Prayers like Second Chronicles seven fourteen: If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. People of the name, let us be people of prayer, of humility, of seeking the face of God, and of repentance and turning from evil ways. And let us be people who bring other people along with us. Let's conclude. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we get a little bit lost and then that wigs us out because there's so much complexity in that word. There's parts of the story we've never heard before and even those parts we have heard before, we've forgotten what they say and mean sometimes because we're not in them often. To be fair, most of us probably prefer reading the New Testament because it just seems simpler. But Lord, I thank you so much for the ways in which you teach us through your whole word. 
how through the old covenant and the new covenant and you bringing those together in Christ, you present to us not only a story, not only histories, but the path of life. Because it's in Jesus that we have life eternal. Thank you for your word today and I pray that it has brought us closer to you. I pray that it has, it is, it has caused us to humble ourselves before you to not be dependent on ourselves for anything, but to seek your face and to pray for others, the people of this land who need you so desperately, people all around us. Lord, on the 17th, we're going to be having this barrels and carols event here at Lawson, and I pray that as we we come, that we, yes, we celebrate with carols and singing and rejoicing because it's Christmas, But I pray, Lord, that how we party and how we celebrate this event would be an indication to our neighbors here that come and the people that we invite that Jesus is our worship. That Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. He's the reason for our life. And we pray through all of our activities through this Christmas season, through Advent, that everything we do will point to Jesus. Not just in this room, not just in our living rooms where some are today, but in every space that we find ourselves. In the malls, in traffic, at work. Lord, help us to see the face of Jesus in everything so that we will pray like he does. We bless you and we thank you for this word. And Lord, we worship you. We are unwavering in our faith. In Jesus' name.